This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. But glad to be with you in the great city of, of Knoxville. Beautiful. Uh, let's see, you've got your Smoky Mountains behind. And, you know, Kentucky is, is pretty in the bluegrass, but it's, uh, it's hard to beat the mountains, isn't it? So uh, glad that you, uh, you are able to do that. Now, in our sessions this morning, so I'm glad you took Saturday morning out, and especially such a beautiful, uh, at least warmer day as uh, we've gone experienced some cold weather. Uh, now it's getting a bit warmer, and you can almost feel spring in the air type of thing. But uh, in our sessions this morning, we're going to look at, you know, primarily the Lord Jesus, right? The person, and obviously when you speak of His person, we're looking at who He is, uh, it's hard to divorce that from what he does, right? But our primary focus will be, you know, looking at who he is and how Scripture presents him. And, of course, that spills over into uh, his work, right? And in these three sessions, uh, it was sort of laid out, I'm laying out for you a kind of methodology that Kent described. Uh, we're going to start, in some sense, uh, with the big picture of Scripture, and that's why we've said knowing Jesus in the Bible storyline, and we're sort of setting back, placing Jesus. If we're going to talk about the Jesus of the Bible, we have to talk about the worldview of the Bible, don't we? We have to talk about the content of the Bible, the theology of the Bible. Jesus means many things to many people, but the Jesus of the Bible comes to us in the Bible, right? And we then have to understand Him within that frame of reference and how he is presented. If you take Jesus out of the Bible, you don't have Jesus. Right? You've got a figment of your own imagination. So Jesus in the Bible storyline, so crucial, and we'll set this up just in a moment of why that's so important for today as well. And then our second session, look at a whirlwind tour of about five glorious Christological Christ texts of Scripture and each of these texts are picked very, very carefully because if you put them all together, they give you who Jesus is, right? He is the eternal Son, the second person of the Godhead who has become flesh, who has taken on our humanity in order to save us. And apart from Him, there is no salvation. And then we want to move from those texts, primarily those are New Testament texts, to then how the church, right? We are part of a heritage, and that's where your handout is sitting on your, your chair, uh, the confession of the church. On this great doctrine, right? The church really has agreed, even though the church is very diverse. When you think of Protestants, Reformation, Christians as we are, uh, those who are Catholic, our Catholic churches, and then the Eastern Orthodox, there is, there's lots of differences, and very, very important differences. Uh, but on this doctrine, right, there's been a lot of, in term, terms of who Jesus is, and the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, there's been, in some sense, what we call Catholic agreement, small c, uh, universal agreement, and that really goes back all the way to the early church, to the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, right? And on your sheet you have the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian creed, that came back in the 5th century, which really lays out for us what the Bible is teaching. They're very accurate at this point. 
And then I have your statement of faith that is now being launched within the Sovereign Grace Churches. And I must say, it is a great statement of faith. Right? Uh, Jeff Perswell and company who put this together uh, knew what they were doing. You could be very proud of it. And so I've got that there because it is very, very, very helpful on the Trinity and the person of Christ. We want to walk through historical how the church has come to confess the Bible, right? The Bible's view of Jesus. So crucial, that's where we really get our, our doctrinal grounding, our theology. What do we actually say in summary fashion as to who Jesus is? So that's where we're going. The Bible, Jesus in the Bible storyline. Jesus through these crucial, crucial New Testament texts. And then Jesus has confessed, right, by the history of the church. So let's pray as we now commit our morning to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the honor and the privilege of gathering even this morning to look at the glory of your own dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Your Son that has been from eternity, that never ever came into existence. He with you and the Spirit eternally exists as the one true and living God, our triune God. And in a moment of time, 2,000 years ago, He became flesh. The Son of God took to Himself our humanity. Apart from sin, He took on a body. He took on our human soul. And in that humanity, He lived a full human life and accomplished our great redemption. We want to think clearly about Him. We want to think clearly about Him, especially in terms of our day and age that is so confused both outside the church, which is in some sense understandable, but sadly in the church. And so help us to think rightly about Him. Life and death hangs on it. To know Him is life eternal. To not know the Jesus of the Bible is ultimately to stand outside of Him, outside of His great work of redemption and under His judgment. So help us to think through these matters. These are sober matters. They're glorious matters. There's matters that should lead us to great joy and confidence and faith and trust, but they are serious. And so help us to think through them uh, in such a way that we honor the Lord Jesus, we honor your word, we say things rightly and truly about him so that we may know him better, we may obey him in our lives, we may trust him more, and we, those who, as you give us time before you come again to be those who are faithful to him in life and in death and for all eternity. So we commit our time to you this morning. Help us to this end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, knowing Jesus from the Bible storyline, really Bible storyline, the whole Bible, right? The whole of, of Scripture, right? Let me just quickly give a couple of introductory comments here as to why this is important to start with, with the entire Scripture and so on, right? The first point is, um, is really regarding the, the challenge we face in our day. And we can spend a lot of time looking at this, but uh, we really do face a challenge, and you know the challenge. If you are sharing the gospel with others in our day, you know the challenge that we face a world outside of the church that, especially in this country, right, that has given, you know, has been so indebted to Christianity, has given so much in terms of lip service to the things of the Bible, but that's all quickly changing, right? If you want evidence of it, 
Just look at the last week in Washington, D.C. When you pass equality acts, <laughs> those equality acts are a total repudiation of everything Christian. Right? Everything in terms of God and creation and humans and all of what the Bible says. I mean, it is antithetical to everything Christian. Right? You can't have a better example of a world that has adopted an entire worldview that stands opposed to God. And that's really what it is. It's not just opposed to the Bible. It's opposed to God himself, right? Was it? Representative Nadler says, we will not have God's will in Congress. Well, <laughs> we'll see what God does with Congress, right? So these are really serious matters. And we, as we take the gospel to our generation outside the church, right? There's a lot of words that describe our day and age, right? It's a pluralistic world that has all kinds of different viewpoints. Never, you know, they will say one view is true, but of course they make their view the truth, right? And they want everyone to bow to it. Or sometimes people describe this as a postmodern world or a post-Christian world or a secular world, a number of things. But in the midst of that, right, there's massive confusion regarding who Jesus is, right? If you want to talk about Jesus to people, they have all kinds of different conceptions, right? Their imagination runs wild, right? And they will have all kinds of ideas from him. But if we're going to communicate to our generation and to our society the Jesus of the Bible, then we have to think of him in terms of an entire theology of the Bible, the entire structures of the Bible, the entire teaching of the Bible, and so on. Now, this is even more so, I think, important for the church. Now, when you talk about the church, right, you should be able to say within the church there should be sound teaching, sound exposition. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. There's a lot of reasons for it, and uh, there's some sense we don't, there's not much we can do about it other than to say we're not going to go the path of many who identify with the church today, right? We know that within the evangelical church, and we'll just limit it to evangelicals, right? There is massive, 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 massive confusion in terms of theology. And not just on one point, every point, right? And massive confusion regarding who Jesus is, right? I don't know if you followed the latest state of theology poll. That's now been given by Ligonier. That was R.C. Sproul's ministry. And Lifeway, which is tied to the Southern Baptist Convention, they have partnered together in 2014 and then every other year, and they released their last results in 2020, and uh, they give a number of questions just asking both outside the church and those who identify with evangelical belief various questions on theology. And particularly when you look at evangelical belief and look at the answers, it's disturbing to say the least. Right? It's confusing to say the least. So on one example, you'll have a statement such as there is one true God who is triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you think you would be very clear about the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and particularly here of the deity of Christ. So when you ask evangelicals this, 96% agree with that. Now that's bad enough, 4%. How do you are an evangelical and deny the Trinity? But, you know, even you say, well, okay, that's 96%. Then they turn around and say, Jesus, here's the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Now, you'd expect, if there's a consistency here, they, only 4% would agree with that. Because 96 already agreed that he's God the Son. 
but you have 30% who are saying he's just a great teacher, and that's who identify with evangelicalism. Right? And then you have a statement, anyone who's familiar with the history of the church, anybody who's familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses, when you have a statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Everyone should acknowledge, if they know anything of church history, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and that's what the Arians believed. That's why the first council of the church denied the Arian heresy and held to the deity of the, of the Lord Jesus, and then the Trinitarian formulation of Father, Son, and Spirit. When you ask evangelicals, Jesus is a great teacher, or he's the first and greatest created being, 65% of them agree with that. Now, I take this to mean they're confusing his humanity with his deity. I, I, that's about the best I can understand this, right? So, Jesus is the first created, well, he became human. That's true. But when you say he's the first and greatest created being, no. <laughs> the Son of God is the Son from eternity. He is God equal with the Father, right? So that statement is just telling you in our churches, right, those who identify with evangelicalism, there is no theology, right? There may be a lot of other things. There's a lot of discussion about all kinds of cultural issues, but there's very little sound theology, right? You ask people about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. We have 46% of evangelicals say he's a force. God accepts the religion, the worship of all religions. And they include in that Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. But they first said all religions. And we have evangelicals, 42% say, yes, that's true. Now, if you have accepting the, the worship of all religions, there's no need for Jesus. Right? What kind of Christology do you have to have? View of Christ's work do you have to have if you can say, you don't need him. All these other religions are fine, right? And of course, as you then get to this question here, which is, you say, well, is this related to the person of Christ and his work? Well, it absolutely is. Here's a question that says, everyone sins a little. <laughs> everyone sins a little. But most people are good by nature. We have 46% of evangelicals saying yes to that. Now, if that's the case, then you don't need a redeemer. The first thing that the Bible will teach you, right? The opening chapters, and we'll see this just in a moment here. You go back to Adam, you go back to Genesis 3, you go back to the one man's disobedience has brought death to all of us by nature. Not just by choice. Yes, it's by choice too. But it's by nature. We are dead in our sins. God must unilaterally act to save us, right? That's why we emphasize you have a whole set of churches that glory in sovereign grace. Why do you, is grace must be sovereign? Because you're dead in your sins. <laughs> you're a creature. You can't save yourself. But these kind of statements here are indeed <laughs> reflecting. We'll just simply say they're reflecting very, very confused views of Jesus, of God, of sin, of the entire Christian viewpoint. Right? It's no wonder our churches are in trouble. Right? So that's one of the issues that we face 
in our day, both outside the church, inside the church. Massive confusion. So what do we do with it? It's very, very important to see, right, is that what we need is faithful exposition, but we need faithful theology from a whole Bible, right? This is why it's very disconcerting to have evangelical pastors say you can unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. <laughs> Good old Andy Stanley, right? You don't need the Old Testament. You just need Jesus and his resurrection. Well, let me tell you, Jesus and his resurrection mean nothing without the Old Testament. Even who Jesus is doesn't just show up brand new in the New Testament. Look at the opening verse of Matthew's gospel. Who is this Jesus? He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, you've got to read your Old Testament, don't you? It builds off an entire Bible. Jesus doesn't come to us just sort of out of the blue. He doesn't some religious leader that just showed up in the, in, you know, the first century type of thing. No, no, no. It's rooted in the eternal plan of God. It's rooted in a whole doctrine of God and so on. Right? This is why when Paul goes to Athens, Paul goes to Athens, there's a lot of similarity between Paul at Athens and what we face today. The big difference is it was pre-Christian then. Now we've got all the baggage of post-Christian. Right? It's even harder for us in some sense. But when Paul went to Athens, he went to a context where people... I mean, the Athenians didn't know the Bible, so they were not knowledgeable of basic Bible content. They didn't know the theology. They were full of alien or false worldviews. So what does Paul have to do, right? As in contrast to going to the synagogue, when Paul goes to the synagogue, he has in common with his Jewish brothers and sisters and so on the Old Testament, and he would just go right to the Old Testament. But instead, at Athens, he has to lay out a whole Christian view of the world, a Bible view of the world, right? That's why he starts with God in creation. That's why he speaks of one man that God made all things, and we all come from that one man. I mean, this is revolutionary because it's starting with biblical categories, biblical structures, a theology of the Bible. So Jesus is given to us in the Bible, right? Paul, at his message at Athens, eventually gets to Jesus, right? So you read that sermon, which is probably two hours long in the, you know, in the original giving of it. You can read it in 15 seconds. Right? So obviously you have the cliff notes or the, you know, the, the, just the, the bullet points. Right? He gets to Jesus near the end of his sermon after he has laid all the pieces in place to make sense of Jesus, right? And that's why it's important to start with knowing Jesus from the Bible's storyline. Jesus doesn't come to us in a vacuum. Right? He comes to you from a whole Bible. So even these New Testament texts that we'll turn to in the next hour, right, are built off of the old, right? They're built off of the entire theology of the Bible. So with that being true and given our context today, it is so, so important that you lay out a whole Bible, right? You lay out the worldview of the Bible, the theology of the Bible. You think biblically, if you don't do this, eventually you'll adopt the thought of the world and you all become syncretists. Syncretism is basically you take a bit of the Bible, you take a bit of the world, and you just match them together. And what happens is you lose the Bible. Right? So we have to then think carefully about Jesus in the context of Scripture. So with that in mind, I just want to prime the pump. I just want to give you four crucial building blocks in our time this morning, right, that lay out for us, right, 
pieces that are necessary to put in place to make sense of the Jesus of the Bible, placing him within the context of the entirety of, of Scripture. And so all of these points could be developed in, in great length. We're just going to hit them. And then as we then from here lay out sort of the rhyme and reason to the Bible storyline, uh, and the Bible storyline is centered in Christ, right? The rhyme and reason as to why the incarnation even took place is found in the Old Testament, right? The reason for a kind of exclusive Savior, the kind of person we need to redeem us is found in the Old Testament, and so these pieces are important, and they're important in communicating Jesus to our world, right? If you've ever interacted with Islam, right? Islam has a whole view of Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible, right? You've got to lay these pieces out for them, otherwise Jesus just doesn't make sense to them, right? And that's true of everybody you come in contact with, right? So what are these four building blocks, these foundational points to the Bible storyline that are so important to understand the Jesus of the Bible, knowing Jesus from a whole of Scripture. Well, in some sense, what we're going to do here is lay out, really starting from Genesis to the New Testament, these categories of creation. And really in creation, I'm thinking of God, who God is, and who we are. God and humans. That's tied to creation. The next great turning point in the Bible is Genesis 3. The fall, right? So, God, humans, those are the first two points. <laughs> the fall, the impact of the fall in light of who God is. And that's crucial. You've got to get that right. And then the plan of God to bring about gloriously, right? God has chosen to save us. He didn't have to save us. He's chosen to save us by grace in His sovereignty. And how is He going to bring that about? Well, He tells you, through a Messiah, but even in the Old Testament, we have a sense of who this Messiah will be. And that then sets the stage to the opening of the New Testament. Who is this Jesus? He is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is the one who's inaugurated the kingdom. He's the one who's brought the new covenant. I mean, it's just loaded if you understand those categories with who Jesus is, his utter uniqueness and his all-sufficient work, why he alone is Lord and Savior. And that's really what we have to communicate to our generation, isn't it, often? Even within the church, but especially outside the church, why is Jesus alone Lord and Savior? Why can't no one, why is there no one else that can save you? Why is it that Judaism and Islam and so on is no salvation, that God doesn't accept that worship, right? Well, there's reasons built within Scripture. So first, let's turn to just simply creation, but particularly our view of God. I can't emphasize enough. It almost sounds like a kind of truism. <laughs> uh, it's true almost by definition type of thing, but it's so, so important. And you have to sort of ground this into your thinking and into your life and into every aspect of you is everything in terms of Christian theology goes back to your view of God. If you get your view of God wrong, everything goes wrong, right? So when people have improper views of God, they will never get anything else right in terms of Christian uh, theology. John Stott, a famous uh, British uh, theologian of yesteryear, he died early 2000s or so, uh, he said in his very famous book on the cross of Christ, which is the work of Christ, he says, every distortion of the cross goes back to a distorted 
view of Christ and a view of God. And he's right. right? And that's true of theology. So what do we have to begin with? Well, again, we can't lay out all these areas, but I would say, who is the God of the Scripture? The God of the Scripture, as we look not only from creation, Genesis, but all the way throughout, God is the triune creator, covenant, Lord. That's who he is, right? And that's just, I picked those words very, very carefully. He's the triune creator, covenant, Lord. Let me just hit some points of importance that will be so foundational to understanding the Jesus of the Bible. First of all, he is the triune. Now we'll come and look at some of these elements when we come to the deity of Christ and so on, but you'll never understand who Jesus is, right? And this is why John's gospel in our next session, we'll begin with John 1. Why does John start from eternity? <laughs> in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? The Bible then says if you're to understand Jesus, you have to understand Jesus to be the eternal Son, the Word of God, right? And that's really getting us into the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Why is Jesus unique? Because he's God the Son. That's why he's unique. He is the Son from eternity, God equal with the Father and the Spirit, right? So the Trinity establishes who Jesus is and also who the Son of God is, and it establishes his uniqueness. You also have to have a proper view of the Trinity to understand his work, right? That when we think of the triune relations, and we'll come back to this in our third session a bit more, but, you know, the Trinity aren't three gods, right? It's one God who's three persons who acts as one. And that's very, very important to see, right? So in the end, even though Jesus takes on, the Son of God takes on our humanity, in the great work of the Lord Jesus, it's a work of God. Now, it's a work of human. <laughs> Clearly, we have, we'll, we'll tie that in very, very quickly. Yet, ultimately, what kind of Redeemer do we need? We need God to save us. Of course, that is so important in understanding the Son. You'll never make sense of that apart from the Trinity. So a lot more there. We'll pick up a few elements of that later on. God is the triune covenant God. And by covenant here, we can think of the biblical covenants that run all the way from creation through Noah, through Abraham, all the way to the new covenant, but also in, um, in Reformation theology, in Protestant Reformation, Reformed theology, they've also spoken of God in terms of a covenant, in terms of an eternal plan within God. Right? Uh, sometimes it's called the covenant of redemption and so on. And so I'm, I'm picking up first that notion that then shows itself in the biblical covenants, right? The Bible's very, very clear that the triune God has an eternal plan, right? So we could spend time laying all of that out, right? So our election is before the foundation of the world, right? Jesus speaks about the glory shared in John 17, 5, before the foundation of the world, that he's come to do the hour of his cross is to do the plan of God, to unfold that eternal plan before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8, and so on. Now, why is this important, right? Well, the Jesus who shows up in history, right? The eternal son who takes on flesh, right? Is bringing about the eternal plan of God, right? Why does, one of the reasons, one of the problems you have to communicate with people is why does this one man, and he is one man in that sense, right? He, Jesus of Nazareth, he lives in space and time. How does that one man affect everybody? 
That's the question of exclusivity, isn't it? You and I aren't like that. We're individual people, but whether people ever know of us or not won't affect their eternal salvation. But when you think of Jesus, how does this one man affect the destiny of every single person? Well, part of it's tied to who he is. Trinity, he's the God the Son. It's also tied to the divine plan, isn't it, right? That divine plan that includes everything, right? That includes all people. Right? He is the one who has universal significance because of who he is and because he's unfolding the divine plan. Right? Nobody else does that, right? And that's so, so important. So his whole work is to bring about the one plan of God. This one man <laughs> determines the destiny of everybody, right? And so that's in crucial. That's a crucial piece, and that's lost much in our day as we speak about the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusivity of his work and so on. And then the last area here that I want to pick up, he's the triune covenant God, but he is the creator Lord, right? And this is very, very important to understand the rhyme and reason, the kind of redeemer we need, and ultimately the kind of work he achieves. So when I speak of him as creator and Lord, this should be familiar, I think, to us, right? Uh, the Bible from the opening verses of Genesis presents God as the sovereign creator of the universe. It presents him as a God who, in the confessional standards, your confessional standards, will say that he is uh, independent and he is self-sufficient, that he needs nothing, and that is the God of the Bible. You remember in Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, almost comically, he says, if I were hungry, he says, I wouldn't be asking you. And of course, the, the humor there is, God doesn't need you, right? Or Paul, when he says at Athens, Acts 17, verse 24 and following, he says, God doesn't live in temples built by hands, <laughs> as if he needed anything. Now, you and I are creatures. God is the creator, right? We speak about the creator-creature distinction, and behind that, of course, is that God is the Lord, right? He is the eternal, independent, self-sufficient one. A great term that has been used in theology for this is God's aseity, right? His life from himself, independence, self-sufficiency, and so on. And this is so, so important in a whole host of areas. He's the eternal one. He doesn't need us for his existence. He always exists. In his knowledge, right, he is the source and standard of truth. But particularly here, as it shows up in redemption, right, is God in his self-sufficiency is the moral standard of the universe. That's so important to grasp, right? What makes something right versus wrong? <laughs> Whether it conforms to the will and nature of God or not. He's the standard. He's the law, if you want to put it that way, right? The Supreme Court of this nation isn't the law. All they adjudicate is a constitution that's just humanly constructed. God is the law. God is the standard, right? And that's very, very important to see because eventually sin is before him. Sin isn't just, you know, we break the code that's external to God. No, we sin against God, right? We sin against, and then of course, think of how Scripture unpacks. God is the Holy One. He is the Just One. Justice. You know, huge questions of justice today. Justice isn't just, you know, giving people what, you know, you think they deserve type of thing. Justice ultimately is tied to a law, a standard. God is the standard. Have you broken that standard? called retributive justice. This isn't just 
a Western way of thinking, as people tell us today. This is ultimately tied back to the very nature of God. And of course, what's going to happen in Scripture is, is that when sin enters the world, sin is against God, it's going to create a huge problem. How does God, who is independent, self-sufficient, who needs nothing, who will share his glory with no one, who is the moral standard of the universe, when we sin against him, how is he going to forgive us when we've sinned against him? Is he going to overlook our sin? That's your neighbor's answer. Is he going to grade on the curve? Is he going to accept your works? Every religion in the world has work salvation. The Bible will say, no, no, no. You need a human redeemer, yes, but you need a divine redeemer. You need God to meet his own demand. And of course, that's crucial to why you need God the Son to become human. Why you need a human that's more than a human. <laughs> you also need God, right? That's the whole rationale for the Son, the Word becoming flesh, bringing about our salvation. But there's the doctrine of God. Now, humans, let me just mention something quickly about humans, right? Adam, can't underestimate enough or overestimate enough the importance of Adam. <laughs> this is why you don't give up a historic Adam. It's not just the evolution of the human race. That's where our world's at, right? So you can just construct your own views of yourself and so on. No, no, no. There's a created order. <laughs> there's an Adam. There's a first man. There's a male, female. There's Adam as a covenant head and representative. And we could spend all of that. But Adam isn't just the first man that showed up. He's also the one who God has ordained in his very plan to represent you, whether you like it or not. And by his act of disobedience, he brings death. And that death now is universal. <laughs> now, these are simple points, but these are crucial to grasp why you need a redeemer and the kind of redeemer you need. So Adam is covenant head. He is the one who is to obey. And there's a demand here for, we, we, we would say in theology and, and, and so on, we would say perfect covenant loyalty. It's another way of saying perfect obedience. There's a lot of people that don't see this, right? What else would God demand of you and I and Adam than simply total allegiance, total obedience, total loyalty? If we don't give him, think of the great commandment, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we don't give him all of that, what do you think he's going to do? Just simply say, well, you did your best. That's not the kind of God that's presented here. God will share his glory with no, no other, right? He demands perfection action from his creatures and that's what you would expect but Adam does not render it and of course this raises a whole problem of the problem of sin so we go to the third area of the nature of the human problem in Genesis 3 we could say it this way Genesis 3 right is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible Every chapter is important. That's a kind of Spurgeon statement, isn't it? Spurgeon, if you listen to Spurgeon's sermons from yesteryear, right? He says every single verse is the most important verse in the Bible. Um, of course, you can't have say that absolutely. But um, here, Genesis 3 is so important, right? So Adam as a representative head. He's not just the first biological man. Adam is the first representative head. Romans 5 unfolds all this for you, right? Paul, Adam, Christ. Two most important people in the whole Bible are Adam and Christ. There's a lot of important people in the Bible, but they're the most important, right? And as Adam brings sin into the world, he brings death, and he brings with it a penalty. 
The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23, but it's built right off of Genesis 2. If you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. <laughs> and that's the penalty of sin, and that's both spiritual and physical death. So how do we overcome this? God doesn't have to save us, but in Genesis 3.15, it becomes very, very important, right? That first gospel promise, there's going to come from the seed of the woman. And notice in this, God says, I will provide. He doesn't say the human race will provide. <laughs> he says, I will act to provide out of the human race a provision that will undo the effects of Adam. The effects of sin. And of course, sin's effects are ultimately treason before God. Cosmic effects in terms of the entire world and so on. But of course, that raises the issue that I've already sort of hinted at here is how does God bring about the reversal of sin and death? How does he then before him justify us? How does he then say your sins are forgiven? What kind of seed of the woman would be necessary? Now, as you work through this in Scripture, obviously the seed of the woman is human. And that makes perfect sense if you're following Scripture's covenants, right? Adam is a covenant representative, right? Think of the priest in the Old Testament as this gets developed. They represent the people. They identify with the people to represent the people. Well, that same principle runs throughout. We need someone from us to redeem us. But we need more than a human. We need a human, but we ultimately need one who will meet his own standard, God's own standard. Who can bring about the forgiveness of God other than God? You see this already in Mark 2, right? Mark 2, where Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders rightly say, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Now, their theology is right at this point. The problem is they don't understand who Jesus is. Right? But they're right in that, right? Sin before God is a huge, huge problem. God will not overlook sin. This is what Romans 3 will get at, right? In terms of the cross. How does God remain just and true to himself and justify us? Does he just look at our good example? Does he simply uh, defeat our enemies? No, eventually scripture will say we need a substitute. A substitute who must come from the human race, but who must also be identified with God, because the problem of sin is sin before God. Now, if you get that wrong, you'll, you'll get the rhyme and reason as to the Redeemer, and you'll get the cross wrong. Right? There's all kinds of debates today over the cross. We hold, right, at the heart of the cross is substitution, but it's not just substitution. In some sense, everybody holds to substitution. You know, Christ is our substitute to defeat the devil, and Christ is our substitute to set an example for us. Christ is, no, no, we need a certain kind of substitution. We need a substitute who's able to take God's own demands upon himself and pay our penalty. It's called penal substitution. Right? Who can bear that penalty? <laughs> Only God. And of course, that runs through. That's why salvation is of God. 
Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation. Now, it's going to be through this human, yes. And of course, the last point here as we finish up this first session, sort of laying down some of these key points. And these key points is what you have to communicate to people. A proper view of God, a proper view of humans, a proper view of sin, sin before God and all of its ramifications. But if you work through the storyline of Scripture, you have the covenants. Now I'm thinking of this, the biblical covenants, the historic covenants. How does the promise of God unfold through the Bible, Genesis 3.15? Well, in some sense, through the covenants, you get a clearer understanding of who the seed of the woman will be. It's going to be human, but it'll come through Noah. It'll come through Abraham. It'll come through Abraham, not Ishmael, but Isaac and the nation of Israel. It'll come through David, right? The coming of the king. But all the way through these covenants, you have twin themes that come together, right? For God to save and to reverse the effects of sin and death, he's going to have to do it. God's going to have to take the initiative. God unconditionally is going to have to save us, otherwise there's no hope for us. You'll never save yourself, yet, given the importance of Adam and the importance of humans in Adam, he will do it through a human. A human who's not merely a human. <laughs> and this is really, the Old Testament sort of sets that up in what we say shadow form or seed form, right? I mean, it's very, very clear as Jesus comes, right, as he speaks with the religious leaders. Who is the Messiah of the Old Testament? And what do the religious leaders say? Following the covenants and ultimately leading us to David, they say, well, he's going to be David's son. That's where Matthew 1 opens up, right? He's the son of David. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 and says, why does David then call him Lord? Remember Psalm 110? Crucial passage, right? Just picked up in Hebrews throughout the New Testament. One of the most quoted New Testament passages, Old Testament passages in the New, right? The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, says to David's Lord. And what does David's Lord do? Sit at my right hand. Now, in biblical thought, not pagan thought, in biblical thought, to sit at the right hand of God is to be God. No human, no angel, no, there's no, there's, the, the divide between creator and creature is absolute. To sit and share the rule and reign of God is to be identified with God. Now, how does that come together? And of course, there's all kinds of other passages in the Old Testament that already begin to give you the sense that the seed of the woman to come is going to be more than a human. And of course, the rhyme and reason of that is that's exactly what you would expect because ultimately our problem is so great before God, God's going to have to remedy his own demand. God's going to have to satisfy his own justice. God, and no human can do that. Even a perfect human couldn't do that for you. You need ultimately God to take his own demand. Of course, as it eventually shows up in the New Testament, right? Think of the Christ's work in justification. Justification, when God declares us right before God, it involves two aspects to it, doesn't it? He obeys for us in his life. He renders for us perfect righteousness. And that's given to us. It's imputed to us. But it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, that's crucial. But he also must die for us. 
He must be a substitute for us. He must take the penalty upon himself and so on. And that runs through these covenants so that as you work through the covenants, right, a human will come, but ultimately one who gets identified with God. And of course, who is this king of the Old Testament? Right? He is called the Son of God in the Old Testament. <laughs> the father-son language of the Old Testament becomes so foundational to understand the father-son language of the New Testament. But as you come to the New Testament, father-son now eclipses merely just God and a human. It's now within God there's a father-son relationship, John 1 and so on. Right? And this son now becomes human. He takes on our humanity, becomes the great king, becomes the great priest for us, and, and so on. Think of the Jeremiah. We'll finish with this passage here in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the great... Um, new covenant passage, right? All the prophets speak of the coming of the new covenant. But Jeremiah 31 says, you know, in the future day, I'm not, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and so on. And he speaks about writing the law on the hearts and writing the law on the minds. And then verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 is so, so important, right? At the heart of the new covenant, God says, I will remember their sins no more. Now, that makes no sense unless you put it in the context of the Old Testament, right? The context of God and of holiness and of sin before God and how the covenants unfold. In the Old Testament, forgiveness of sins came through the sacrificial system, didn't it? But anybody who's got their brain ticking here, and of course the prophets are picking this up, and even the promise of the new covenant is picking this up, right? Is that that sacrificial system, if that's all you had by itself, it would never save you. The, the, the substitute given wasn't even human. Right? Uh, I mean, it was repetitive. It was done over and over again. This is what Hebrews picks up, right? All of it was pointing forward. But when you have the promise of a new covenant, at the heart of the new covenant is going to be the putting away of sin so permanently that God says, I'll remember it no more. It's not because he has amnesia. Right? It's because it's finished. It's done. Well, then you have to ask in biblical thought, who on earth can bring about that? <laughs> Only God can forgive sins. And of course, that's precisely the point. When Jesus comes and inaugurates the new covenant, he's not just doing so as a human. He's doing so as the eternal son of God who takes on our humanity. And in that humanity, as the eternal son, now secures for us an eternal salvation right he takes his own demand in himself and it is paid for in full right that's why salvation now is done it's achieved it's accomplished our justification and so on right now these are the key points that set us up for the new testament now as you come into the new testament what do we find right jesus comes as the son of david the son of abraham he comes by inaugurating the kingdom, and the inauguration of the kingdom is tied to the coming of the new covenant. He's the one who brings the forgiveness of sins, right? What's his name mean? <laughs> Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. That's an allusion to Jeremiah 31, right? Those pieces are necessary to make sense of the Jesus within the Bible. And if you don't get God right and Adam right and humans right and sin right and in some sense the covenantal unfolding right, you'll never understand Jesus is just in a vacuum, right? It's like, what is this guy doing? Is he just giving us good philosophical teaching? No. 
Yes, he's giving us great teaching. He's the great final prophet, right? But he's doing more of that. He's coming to redeem, and it's a kind, a specific kind of person that's doing that. Right? And apart from then a sound Christology of who he is, fully God, fully human, one person, two natures, that's the language of the church, you have no redeemer. You have no redeemer the way the Bible describes God and the problem, right? And that's what we have to communicate to people. So those are some of the four building blocks. We've gone on here, so we got to take our break. Well, it's 10 o'clock, but uh, that's the first area. Within that frame, and much more can be said, within that frame now, these New Testament texts now make sense. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.